I'm Claire Daly and you're listening to the Bloomsbury Institute podcast, recorded live at Bloomsbury Publishing in Bedford Square, London. For details of our future events and to listen to all of our other podcasts, go to www.bloomsburyinstitute.com. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Institute. Can you all hear me? Because we've got a slight problem with our microphones tonight. Yeah? Okay. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm Anna Brewer. I'm the editor for the plays for Matthew and Drama. I'm delighted to be joined tonight by three very wonderful people. Mark Haddon, the author of The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, the award-winning novel. Simon Stevens, playwright and adapter of Curious Incident for the Stage and Jeff Coleman, who's head of acting at the Central School of Speech and Drama. Um, this is the second Methuen Drama Bloomsbury Institute event. Um, the first one was with uh, the married, a married couple, Adrian Lester and Elisa Chakravarti, who we refer to as the Posh and Becks of the theatre world. <laughs> um, so while Mark and Simon are actually, <laughs> actually married, <laughs> um, they did recently confess to having a bromance <laughs> during their time working together on the Curious Instance. The play was a bromance. <laughs> 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 but obviously adapting someone's novel is an incredibly responsible job and also probably quite risky. Um, recently we, we published Refugee Boy, which is obviously adapted from Benjamin Zephaniah's uh, novel, and we published a stage version. And it, it was adapted by a guy called Lem Sisse, who was Benjamin's good friend. But uh, Benjamin said of Lem, I trusted him with my book. I wouldn't trust him with my wallet. I wouldn't trust him with my wife. But I trust him with my book. So I think it's a similar thing. You know, it's something that everyone holds dear and you've got to do the right thing. Simon's done an incredible job on the adaptation. It's, I don't know how many of you have seen it, but it's fresh, it's theatrical, it's its own beast, while also being very true to the original. Um, so if you haven't seen it, then, then please do. It's been an enormous success. It ran at the National, where it sold out. It's transferred to the West End, where it's running now. Um, it's been nominated for an Olivier Award for Best New Play. It won the South Bank Sky Art Award for Best New Play. Um, and that's not to mention the, the awards that it's got for the actual production, the director, and the fabulous young lead actor, Luke Treadway, who's on the front of the edition. Um... Curious Incident is actually just one feather in these men's caps. Mark, I don't know whether you know it, but he's also a playwright alongside being an award-winning novelist, illustrator and poet. And his play Polar Bears premiered at the Donmar Warehouse in 2010 and was published by Methuen Drama. And I read recently that he's writing a new piece, uh, but he's refusing to tell me what it is. He doesn't reply to that bit in my email, so if anyone can ask that very question again, I'd be really grateful. Simon, I can safely say, is one of the greatest living dramatists. He's amazing. The, he's, <laughs> he's only 21 and he's got three, <laughs> he's got three collected play volumes. His plays are produced all over the world, and the number of young playwrights that come to me and say, I really want to be published by Methuen Drama because you published Simon Stevens is quite staggering. The other thing I said is also because you published Mark Cadden. So. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed tonight. Um, Jeff's going to be talking to Simon and Mark, asking about their work, Curious Incident, and we'll have time for questions at the end, so do save them up. And thank you for being here. Um, well, thank you very much. Um, I really want to be on this stage because you publish both of these. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, the sort of house style is going to be that uh, we're going to sort of, you know, three middle-aged men are going to ruminate uh, for about four to five minutes in a spellbinding, entrancing manner. And then uh, serious questions will come from you guys uh, for about the last 15, 20 uh, minutes. And I thought that actually would sort of speak sort of generally and philosophically to start with, rather than going into, on page 17, or uh, you know, that, that may be what you would like to ask. So I, I'd like to um, start by sort of asking really <coughs> the difficulty of connecting both of you to something that is sort of a bit 10, year, 10 11 years now um, in your sort of history. I mean... Uh, it, it's not like it, you sort of wrote it, sent it into methane drama and, and bang. Uh, it was a novel, it existed, it, it, it had its own, its own um, sort of life and, and appreciation of its form as a novel. Uh, and then ten years later, mm-hmm. it becomes something completely different. And I was thinking of that, and then I was thinking of a comment that Simon made in his first uh, collection of plays for methane drama, talking about looking at that collection in a way a parent might look at a sort of series of photos of one's children and sort of feel connected to that moment, but in some way also very distant to that moment. And so I want to talk about connection and distance, and I want to talk about the ten years thing, and I'd like Mark to sort of kick off with that bit. I think the first couple of years it does feel like <clears throat> your baby, and then and it grows up, and I feel... Curious Incident, then got 16 and 20. And Curious Incident's like about 36 now. <laughs> <laughs> it looks after itself really well. It brings home occasionally. <laughs> too much. It's a, it's a robust thing with its own entirely separate life. Uh, which often doesn't have any connection with me at all. I mean, I can see it was me 10 years ago. When I, when I reread the novel, when we were, we were going to do it, and you were going to... I, uh, then I had to talk to you about the novel. I had to remind myself what the novel was about so that when you asked me questions, I sounded like I knew what I was talking about. <laughs> and it had become... I was like seeing it through slightly sort of frosted glass. I talked about it so often that I couldn't really remember the experience of writing it. And I couldn't even read it in a naive way anymore. I could sort of, in a lit crit way, say, oh, that's probably a funny bit. That's probably quite a sort of sad bit there. This is how I'm manipulating the reader there. And one of the things I really hoped for uh, when Simon and Marion got involved, Frantic Assembly got involved, was that I would sit in the theatre on the first night and have the book sort of return to me fresh again. Yeah, and amazingly it happened. I'd like to move um, that, in a sense, that 10-year question uh, via the National Theatre. This is a man who has had the most uh, major revival of Port, one of his sort of absolute beautiful plays, that was performed ten years ago up north, and so there's a sort of ten year theme running here. Yeah. But, but it's the, because you're middle aged. It's because you're middle aged. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is what happens. You, you talk about it being 37 or, or whatever, but in, in, it isn't. It, it's, a, it's a novel that became fixed in its, in its mm. dust jacket, in a sense. And then 
you write you write plays. So why didn't you just sort of cut out the middleman? Um, <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a lot more profitable if you could have just written the I'm play. I'm so very glad. <laughs> before uh, we get to that, I'd like to ask that question. Why didn't yeah. you just write the annotation? For the same reason that surgeons don't operate on their own children. children. Yeah. Oh, right, yeah. You can't. I have adapted. No one really knows about this, but eight, ages ago I adapted uh, Funks the Bogeyman for television for Raymond Briggs. And as a result, I know the appalling injury you have to do to a text to actually yeah. get it into a script. You, you can't do that to something that you've written yourself because you feel too tender about... Not you just feel too tender about it, you feel too tender about certain bits as well. You hang on to bits that have too much meaning for you. You need to approach it very clinically. So you're both having... Like the hard part, like Simon. So you're, you're both having this sumptuous dinner at the Garrick, both of you, middle-aged men, and... Pretty much where we always meet. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and over the sort of double espresso at the end there, you sort of say, it'd be lovely if you adapted my play. That's <laughs> about it. Now, how did that happen? <laughs> I think we did that life to start, actually. It hasn't been <laughs> we got we got lots of offers um, from various people for dramatic rights, for film rights, for musical rights. There were two bona fide offer for musical rights for it, and we finally decided that if we were going to say, you're talking in the royal we here. What's that about? Oh, Thatcher's <laughs> <laughs> funeral. <Yeah. laughs> um, it was some name I published in my age. Well, that's a relief. I thought, <laughs> I thought fame had really got me. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to share responsibility for the whole thing. And then, there were so many. We thought, well, you know, why don't we do it? Instead of waiting for the right person to come along, why don't we just got the wrong person? <laughs> <laughs> find the right person. And in fact, I, I, I kept taking uh, credit for this, but I think it might have been Dominic Cook at the World Cup who mentioned it in passing. I was trying to talk to him about something completely different. He kept changing the subject to Curious Incident, which I think he might secretly have wanted to put on. He said, when did you Simon to do it? So you were lurking somewhere in your yeah. core. Well, we were, we, uh, it was, it, I'm always lurking. <laughs> there's some playwrights who just kind of lurk in the metabolism of the Royal Court, and I'm proud to be one of those playwrights. So it was my life's ambition to lurk in the Royal Court. Lurker. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, but actually we met at the National Theatre. Uh, I was on a year-long uh, residency, and you were on an eight-week attachment. And um, we, t- we just kind of hung out of it. We kind of we used to go for lunch together and grumble about life and about uh, being middle-aged and about children and about music. I can't picture that at all. Like. <laughs> it, was really, it was very, very enjoyable. Um, and, that's how we, and, and then in the, that was kind of 2006. And the kind of following year, year or uh, following couple of years, I sent out a couple of plays and you read early drafts of Harper Egan and Punk Rock, I think. And you certainly come to see Harper Egan and Punk Rock. Uh, and I read an early draft of Polar, Bear, Polar Bears, um, and, uh, and it was just kind of two writers kind of hanging out, supporting yeah. and interrogating one another. And then in my memory, I got a phone call from you in the middle of 2008 saying, what, how would I feel about adapting Curious Incident? And my memory's an unreliable beast, but I think that's how it went. Yeah. I, think that, I think it was shortly after Punk Rock, or no, shortly after Harper Eagle, you know, we're old now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Someone was asking me this the other day, and I was trying to remember my, my, my thoughts, apart from really liking your work. I, I wondered if your bleak nihilism and your love of random violence would be a kind of guarantee against getting too sentimental. I think it's really, really important. And 
And one of the first mm. conversations we had together, because I've read the book before I met Mark. Mm. I read the book when I was writing, uh, and this is really central to my thinking, actually. I read the book when I was writing Motortown, uh, and, one, and uh, one of the characters in Motortown, which is a savage play, uh, is uh, the brother of the main protagonist, is, uh, I think, autistic. And as part of research in Motortown, I read Curious Incident mm. as a means of kind of excavating uh, the imagined experience of autism. And really loved it and was really taken by it. But was, I, I remember being very confused by people who described the book as being uplifting. Mm. Because for me, the book was always kind of complicated and contradictory and ambiguous mm. and actually quite dark. And I, when we first met, we first met in my office. And one of the first things I remember saying to you was, I don't find the ending of the book completely euphoric. Because when Christopher, in the first-person voice, which is how the book is narrated, says, I can do anything now. Which is the last line of both the play and the book. Yeah, I, I can do anything. I just didn't believe him. Because, because, he's, because the nature of his condition, the nature of his naivety, the nature of his life, means that life is going to be very, very difficult for him. Uh, and, and, and I think, for me, it was... A little, it was the thing I'm most proud of, of anything else in the adaptation, is that that moment is not a moment of absolutely unguarded euphoria. In the same way that perhaps Port concludes with a sort of, in the text, a sort of sunset. Right, yeah. But what is it rising over? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's yeah, ambiguity yeah. there. Yeah. I mean, by, in comparison to the plays I've written in the past kind of five years, Port feels almost kind of irresponsible. Yeah. Optimistic. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> I mean it's what's, really, what's really interesting about... Um, What's really interesting about adaptation and about writing uh, versions as well, because mm. it around the same time I wrote the version of Doll's House, is the question is why do you why are you drawn to certain texts? Mm. Why are there certain texts that you want to adapt? Mm. Why when Mark rang me and asked me if I wanted to do it, did I immediately go yes? Mm. What is there about Doll's House that makes me want to go yes, mm. I'll do that? Mm. When uh, there's many other plays written in uh, second languages that I don't want to do versions of and many other novels that I don't want to do adaptations of and I think for me with this book there are two um, there, are, there are two kind of questions at the heart of this book um, two kind of interrogations at the heart of this book that I think are interrogations at the heart of all of my work in the past 12 years one of which is is it uh, naive or radical is it urgent or foolish to be optimistic now you know what's the nature of optimism now and for me, the play is an interrogation as much as anything else. More than, more than it's an interrogation of autism, for me it's an interrogation of optimism. Mm. And I got really excited by that. And the other is, um, uh, uh, it was extraordinary watching rehearsals of Curious Incident in the morning and then going to rehearsals of Doll's House in the mm. afternoon and seeing there are, there are kind of certain lines in both plays. And one line is, I, 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 I wouldn't lie, or I don't lie. Mm. It's an interrogation of honesty, an interrogation of the empathetic nature of honesty. Mm. Is it empathetic to tell the truth to somebody? Mm. Or actually, is dishonesty, does mm. dishonesty come from kindness? Mm. And I think because the, play for, because the novel for me is about the nature of honesty, the nature of empathy, the impossibility of empathy, the need for empathy, the tragedy for empathy being impossible, and the nature of optimism, that was why I wanted to adapt it. It was excavating those. What's interesting is you, you, you had those two reactions, but one of the, your first reaction was not what 
what my first reaction would have been was, how the hell do you turn something which is radically first person into a script, which is kind of always third person? <laughs> I couldn't see my way past that seemingly insurmountable obstacle, which you ignored completely. Yeah, I remember you telling me that you thought there was going to be a problem with thinking that. <laughs> 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 I thought, I thought the real problem is going to be getting from Swindon to uh, yeah. Swindon to North West London, Swindon to Wilson. That was what we did. Swindon to Wilson on stage. That's hard. <laughs> and that's when I thought frantic assembly might come in very, very useful indeed. I'm interested in that shop, that sort of list of things that you identified within the novel. Yeah. Because what you didn't, um, in a sense, identify as a sort of primary identification was autism itself. And I, uh, there's been sort of much critical discourse on this book and this play being either or a play or a book about autism or not, or about humanity itself. And I was thinking um, uh, yesterday about, there was a period in the West End in the early 80s when we had Elephant Man, we had Children of Lesser God, we had Crystal Clear, a play about blindness. We had a sort of, you know, sort of disability season. Like some sort of freakish, sort of Fellini film. Everywhere you turned, there was a strange disabled people. And it was, parade, it was paraded in a way which was very much about the disability making its debut on the stage, really. And both in the novel and certainly in the play, the ability or disability doesn't make its debut, it doesn't make its bow in the play at all. It is about a beating heart that you describe. I'd like, in a sense, for both of you to sort of um, assure me that that is, in a sense, so sort of the, the, the right way that we're thinking. Because it isn't a book about autism, is it? Is it, is it? The amount of effort I've expended over the last ten years, <laughs> yeah. a, a not becoming involved in autism organisations yeah. and being to people, I don't want to become an idiot. Pinup boy. Yeah. <laughs> and that it's not... Um, I really regret Asperger's having been on the cover. He describes himself in the book as um, a young mathematician with some behavioural issues, which I think is great. Well, a, it's, a, it says, a, it says sod your labels. Yeah. B, it's, it's sort of slightly takes the piss out of labels as well, doesn't it? There's a kind of mocking irony about other people's way of describing him. And he's in charge of how he's, he himself described. For me, it's about, it's about the way in which he sees the world. It's about outsiders who are interesting both in and of themselves and because they grant you a view back at the mainstream society from which they have been excluded. Um, it's about all types of difference. Mm. And unlike something like The Elephant Man, mm. almost everyone who reads the book or goes to the play says, t- t- to some extent, that's my experience. Yes. Mm. I mean, some people, go, some people send me letters saying, you've written my life story. Mm. But almost everyone says, you know, I understand that bit or that bit. If he was completely alien, no one would really understand. But he's not completely alien to anyone. Well, that was the problem, I think, with that 80s season in terms of really all we did was observe a sort of theatrical freak show. We couldn't in any way connect our hearts to it. And yet, your adaptation, too, encourages us very much to sort of dive straight in with our heart and mind, as opposed to a sort of ready reckoner of whether this is on a spectrum or not. I think when I read the novel, something I tried to kind of capture uh, in the adaptation, what what I thought about Christopher's voice was I just... So recognised seeing the world as he mm. saw it. So recognised uh, the weirdness of detaching yourself from, from uh, empathetic phenomena. Just going, look how odd that is. <laughs> and also so recognised the desire to actually just not give a shit about yeah. other people. Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually just kind of just live life in a kind of neutral emotional That's space. That's one of the things that celebrates... Uh, uh, 
particularly in the play, but even more so than in the novel, that if you talk about it as a disability, as a negative thing, you forget the fact that actually a lot of the time you'd be it's great being here. Yeah, yeah, yes. exactly. One of the yeah, exactly. shut off from other exactly. people for a while, exactly. just indulge yourself in obsessions, be able to focus on the obsessions. <laughs> not, not Sometimes you just want to build a train track <laughs> <laughs> and not worry about the, the emotional trauma your mum and dad are going through. I, mean, I, can't, I can't beat my nine-year-old son at chess because I've got the mind that thinks about something else all the time. Every ten seconds, yeah. something else. Just for once, can I just turn a knob and I'm going to think about this one thing for like the next eight hours. Yeah. That's, a, that, yeah. that's a huge gift. Yeah, I think, I think that's why the book is so successful. Because mm. I think a lot of people want to want to be like Christopher. It's absolutely not a book about the other. Mm. It's a book about recognizing uh, recognizing our position as outsiders. All of us recognizing our position as outsiders. Let, let's talk about this um, moment of adaptation. I, I'm sort of mindful of all of those millions of screen adaptations of Dickens where. Characters who've been sort of just described by the sort of thickness of their wrists, yeah. suddenly in three dimension and full form, yeah, yeah, and you sort of right. miss something there, or, or, yeah. or the sort of pillar box mouth suddenly having a head wrapped around it. And mm. um, those are some of the issues, I think, aren't they? That, the film is not metaphorical in the same way. The film is always has a kind of a literalness you cannot escape. Yeah. There is a person there, it feels like yeah. a window on the thing which is happening. But on stage, you can try. You, well, you talk about this, but you've, you've taken the metaphor. The metaphoricalness of the novel, and you've shifted its itself into a metaphoricalness about stage instead of about page. Haven't you? Yeah, I think when, um, what's beautiful, what's beautiful about the uh, about the book is because it's written from Christopher's perspective. There isn't, as there is uh, in a, a lot of novels in the last two hundred years, a real commitment to trying to establish authorial, objective description of the characters in the periphery of the book. Christopher will pick on one detail uh, and, and, and the character will be defined in that one detail as you say and I think the way we try to do that uh, and when I say we I do use it in the Thatcherite royal we no I'm with me and Marianne Elliott Marianne directing yeah. it and Christie designing it and the ensemble the way, the way that me and Marianne kind of thought about it was using the ensemble like that so, the same, so you, you get an actor uh, who might play five or six different roles because to Christopher, he's defined just by his function. I always love um, the moment where Matthew is the neighbour who has the T-shirt saying beer, helping people have sex for 200 or 2,000 years. Just the ugly people have sex. I mean, ugly people have sex for 2,000 years. I'm so and sad that that logo is so small on stage. <laughs> <laughs> Can you just come up the front? <laughs> the, um, and, you know, I, 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 I think there's something in the fact that, that Matthew... Who, who plays that character has also just played the policeman who was attacked by Christopher uh, and will go on to play further policemen and go on to play further characters. I think there's something in that language, that theatrical language, that speaks of the same kind of subjectivity. But on a more basic level, the book is about writing a book and the play is about putting on a yeah. play. Although yeah. that, although that um, conceit is very lightly, uh, slightly weaved through the play, so you only remember it every so often. Mm. But I think... Something I only realised the other day, and in fact, it must be when I was in the theatre, because uh, it's a first-person novel, it's on the page, it's about writing a book, the, sort of the, the centre of gravity about which the book turns is the moment when Christopher discovers his mother's letters and realises that she's not dead. Because on stage it becomes... Uh, the, the, the stage is the metaphor, it's a different centre of gravity, isn't it? It's... Um, where is it on stage? It's when his father 
this confrontation with his father. I think it's the uh, it's the it's the moment after the discovery of the letters. It's the moment when the father tells I killed I killed Wellington. That's and right. Yeah. That, and the decision to go to London. Because on stage you can see his father. With, his father. They're both standing in front of you. You're not yeah, in front yeah, of his head anymore. It becomes a slightly different story with a different sense of gravity. And his father matters much more when you can see him. Stage. I think you would, it's a, um, it's one of those diagrams with circles with that sort of a a Venn, Venn diagram. You could do a sort of Venn diagram of some of the sort of sensibilities of both of you as, as writers. One of the things that is very apparent is the, the notion of touch, being touched and, un, and untouched and not touched. And the book, there are moments of absolute sort of physical isolation. And yet this is a very physical play. And then I'm sort of thinking of a uh, play such as Heron, where you just want to sort of reach out and cuddle the, the sort of protagonist because you just think all they need is love and cherishment. And I, I'm sort of thinking that, that if I was to draw a sort of little diagram of, your, of the sort of um, heartlands of, of, of you two as writers, touch seems to me to be quite important. And it, and it seems so um, vi- visually striking, I think, in, in, uh, in the theatrical adaptation because they are having to hold each other and move each other and throw each other which, in a sense, is a different sort of language and a different sort of dramaturgy to that of a novel. I'll come on to that and talk about that shortly, but it's interesting, when you were talking, the image of touch, that when I, uh, when I, when I immediately think of touch in this production, I don't necessarily see the work that Stephen Hogger and Scott Graham did for Frontic Assembly. I just see that. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what? Here's a revelation. <laughs> Do you know where I nicked that from? <laughs> Go on. Do you know, every, you know, it's the whole life, right? I write just, you know, pretend they make everything up, but they all nick everything from places. But you said, I go around with this great grab bag. I feel like a sort of brag and bone now. I still this from here and that from here. And I remember the other day where it came from. Don't tell anyone. Have <laughs> <laughs> you all seen the play? You know what we're talking about. Does anybody so not know what we're seen the play? Does anybody okay. not know what we're Don't talking about? Don't tell them about the. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, Most people know what we're talking about. Do you remember that film, The Sixth Sense? With, uh, no, yes. sorry, but was it, it Bruce, Bruce Willis? Willis? Yeah. Yeah. Does that mean? That's <laughs> wicked. It's like, it's like alchemy. I have stolen something from a Bruce Willis film. How tawdry. tawdry. <laughs> it's transformed. I, really, I think it's a really astute observation. I, uh, in writing Motorcycle, which is the play that I first discovered, discovered the, the novel through, uh, I remember having a document. And the, the, the first sentence that I read every day I sat down to work on that play was this document. And the first sentence of the document was every scene is a moment of contact. Uh, and I think there's something in... Is there something in a moment of touch that you can visualise on stage that you can't describe? Or wanting to touch. Or needing yeah, to touch. Yeah. And the desire to, the inability to. There was a, a, w- w- well, to make it really work, you have someone who wants to touch and someone who doesn't want yeah. to touch. That's, I mean, that's how yeah. you get a scene going, isn't it? Yeah. Having two people wanting contradictory things. When we, uh, in the, uh, before, before uh, six months before we started rehearsal, we had, there was a workshop at the National Theatre Studio with Stephen Hoggart and Scott Graham who were responsible for the choreography of the production uh, as part of Frantic Assembly, uh, Marianne, and a lot of the actors f- from the production still now, that alone production in Nashville. Um, and on the final day, the improvisation that Stephen Hoggart led was that he led an improvisation in which the actor playing the father 
and uh, Luke Treadaway, who was playing Christopher in the workshop, were able to touch one another in the way that they really wanted mm -hmm. to. And it was heartbreaking mm -hmm. to watch the father and son really kind of cuddle each other and really kiss each other and just mm -hmm. hold each other mm -hmm. like that. And the desire to touch. Mm -hmm. So for me, the, the bit in the novel, the bit in the play which breaks my heart, that. I know it was quite tender, but I really enjoyed it. I was really into that. And it was kind of deliberate. It wasn't. <laughs> it's, when, um, it's when Christopher refuses to touch his father's fingers. I think it's kind of devastating. In terms of the work that Frantic did, did in terms of the choreography in that, and you should really speak to them about it, but it struck me that there was something balletic about Christopher's mind, and that, and, and, and you know, the challenge, the challenge with adapting the novel, one of the challenges with adapting the novel is when you read it, you just fall in love with this voice, and you fall in love with this mind, and he's such an exciting thinker. And such a kind of, and as you say, he's not something different to us. He's something that we aspire to be. Uh, and in term, and what you can't really have as a character just narrate that straight at us. But I just thought I, I was very excited by the idea that intellectually he dances. Well, perhaps we ought to explain for people who haven't seen the play without giving too much away that although there's a great deal of tension between him and his father, him not wanting to touch, and his father wanting much more touch. One of the paradoxes is that through the frantics work, in fact, he touches a lot of the other actors yeah. all the time. Yeah. But it's not, it's not touch. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that's what, of course, you can't, you can't cover anything on film, can you? Yeah. I love the fact on stage something can mean something and it's opposite at exactly the same time. Yeah, I'd yeah, like yeah. to um, just pick, pick that out, actually, in terms of in it, truth, the truth of the moment in, in the theatre is often mediated not by the actor or the language or the effect itself at all, but by... by uh, by, by the space around it, in terms of it might be the sort of fading of a light source, or it might be a sound source that sort of pervades that space. And so the truth becomes very mediated, doesn't it, in, in, in that way that it, it is, in a sense, more fixed in the novel. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Of <laughs> 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 I think what, sort of, um, what I'm sort of saying here is you can get a sort of no, actually, no, no, let me, let me answer that. It's not fixed in the novel. People read the novel and think it is fixed. When they go back and they look at it with a, with a, with yeah, a, a sharp good. eye, very they realise that it's full of holes which they have filled. And I think one of the reasons people feel, yeah. many people feel they, a sense of ownership of the novel, which they don't feel of many other novels, irrespective of the novel's quality, is because they have contributed a great deal to the experience that they have had. Yeah. And the Christopher doesn't describe that's the example what it's like. Everyone yeah. knows what Christopher looks like. And you say, well, go back through the novel. He's not, yeah. He doesn't yeah, describe exactly. himself anywhere. Yeah. So yeah. people feel that he belongs to them because he does, because they've, in a sense, constructed him. It was why it was, why it was such an easy novel to adapt, because you think dramatically. And you can yeah. nick lots of the lines. Because, really the, sure. <laughs> <laughs> because the dialogue is innately dramatic. Yeah. It's not just the leanness. I was, what I found fascinating about the novel, one of the first things I did was just transcribe all the direct speech. And what, in comparison to other great novelists, whenever you make a character speak and you transcribe what they say, it is because they very, very, very much want to do something to somebody else, not because they want to reveal backstory. And I, you know, I, I kind of love, for example, the novels of, say, Philip Roth or Saul Bellow. You transcribe their direct speech, it's turgid. You know, it doesn't work dramatically. Your direct speech is innately dramatic. There's something innate about your thinking that is the thinking of a dramatist. I, I want to um, talk about the, the thinking writer in both of you. 
some uh, dramatists uh, are writing for a machine that is the theatre, and they're writing for a, a sort of Peter Brookian empty space, which is populated by actors who are sort of transporting us into character, whereas other dramatists might actually see the world of, of, of play. Uh, so first, when, when you're um, writing not adaptations, but when you're writing your own work, yeah. is the sky above your head? Is the grass under? Is the sky above the character's head? And is the grass? No, no the, the lighting room. The, the lighting room. Yeah. Yes. And the stage is upon their feet. Although you always talk about sparse staging, you're often you sort of say sparse. Yeah, I don't think those two things are necessarily mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think they feed into one another. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, I. Um, uh, so when a character speaks, it speaks out into the machine of theatre. Yeah, and a character, to push that even further for me, I normally, when I visualise a scene in, in my mind's eyes, yeah, uh, yeah. what I visualise is not a fictional character so much as an actually specific actor. Right. So I write yeah. four actors. Yeah. So uh, it's already sort of being mediated. Exactly. In my imagination, it's mediated before, before I write really it. Yeah. 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 I, I, I find that really exciting. Yeah. I, you wrote pornography for an actor, didn't you? I wrote for a director, for director even. Yeah, yeah, and pornography was even further. It was yeah. for a specific director. Yeah. I didn't know the actors were going to do that right. um, because they were actors in, in uh, Germany. Yeah. Uh, but it was absolutely for a, for a director. Yeah. For me, that you know, when I see a scene, yeah. I see it on the stage of the theatre that's commissioned yeah. me to write it, which yeah. is why I take commissions normally. Yeah. And I see it in the auditorium of that yeah. uh, theatre, yeah. and I see it being watched by the audience of that yeah. theatre. Right. So the place the rhythm of that. Yeah, place. yeah, and, and then and they put you on the West End. <laughs> <laughs> and then, yeah, well, yeah, and then you're initially repelled, and then really seduced. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> question, really. You know, so you've got your um, sort of laptop there, and you're, you're you know, it's two, two a.m. in the morning. Oh, writing, writing. Film? <laughs> <laughs> so are, you see, are, you, are you seeing it like sort of filming your head and transcribing? Depends what I'm writing. I'm, one of the, I'm rather jealous of Simon's writing life in the sense that you know when you're going to write, you sit down and on the whole you finish it, don't you? Yeah. I have at least seven designs. Not on the whole, always. I've always. never, I've never not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's so inadequate. <laughs> it's, it's not inadequate. I, I, I yeah. write rubbish and then I'd write something that's quite good yeah. and I'll, I dearly wish I could somehow even out that shape but I just can't do it but in the I, I've just thrown away five plays we'll come to the moment but in the writing <laughs> the it's the sky above the characters' heads when you're writing it as it were sometimes I don't even know whether it's a short story or a play or anything right. I'm just I'm just Right. Now let's talk about the rubbish bin. Let's talk about the rubbish bin. Uh, so you've deleted, what, deleted or ripped up or...? Yeah, I've thrown away so much stuff. When you say throw away, what, delete? Or... <laughs> no, it's still, I'm going to have to go and clean. You know, some people have got to clean the porn from their hard drive. I've got to go back and I've got to clean the sort of early drafts of drugs. Do you, do, you, do, you, do you delete early drafts? Yes, because I've realised that you, you can throw away a lot of stuff and all the good stuff kind of floats back to the surface again. You, you can throw everything and the good stuff sticks with you. And it's a good way of winnowing it. But you don't need to delete the draft to do that. I secretly think that what writers need to talk about is things like font and layout. I think that's more revealing than anything else. I do genuinely delete the. I do flowcharts. There's a really good word. Wow. Sort of 
facility. Does anyone get, you know, when you have trouble writing something in words, you think, great, I can use the word box thing, and there's the arrows with a shadow or not with a shadow, hypertext thing, that, lots of that, and you think, I'm just horizontalizing, oh, I'm not actually writing. Well, it does seem to work, but I have to go through throwing all this stuff away. So, what, you read through those five plays and just like, nah, delete. Or was there sort of. He actually read four short ones. He said he quite yeah. loved one, but I realised they were all crap. No, but, no, no, yeah, you're wrong about that. But it's interesting. You need to be rock, you know, because they were all quite poor. There was one which was, ex- was really exciting. Sorry, this is because so so what chat between so us two. So when you're on that, all these marriage. people here. But it's not, it's not, it's not. So, so you were talking about some sort of resurfacing, a, a sort of patina of what was good being on you. Well, so, you're, so you are carrying the well, residue. Here's a really quick story. You're getting a bit panicky now. I'll go, I'll go through a quick story which shows exactly how it works in principle. No, we might delete it. Before, before the last novel, the Red House, I wrote this appalling folly de grandeur, which is going to be a novel consisting of eight short eight, Well, they're not short stories. One was a sort of zombie movie script. One was a long poem. One was a short story. One was a sort of memoir. One was going to be a graphic novelette. I'm, I feel ashamed of it right now. They, they had this structural conceit of, you remember those tile puzzles which you got in party bags around 1975? They got a grid with eight squares. And my idea was that the absence, the lack of the ninth square made it possible for you to change the picture on the other four squares. And I, I was actually considering the possibility of having one chapter completely blank. Don't tell anyone. How many pages? No, I realise. And all the stories were about absences, about missing children, about people who have died and have gone. And then I threw it away. I said, I realised what I was doing. I held it away. And I started something completely different. I wrote this novel called The Red House. And I was sitting on stage talking to Claire Armistead from The Guardian at the Hayley Literary Festival, and she said, um, she said, I was reading this book, and I said, what kept occurring to me? I was reading it. Do you remember those little tile puzzles? Wow. <laughs> I, I had this weird shiver. And then while we were on stage, I said, do you know what? She said, shit, I've just realised that. Well, you've read that novel. Yeah. <clears throat> it's about eight characters and one stillborn daughter who's not around. And it's her presence as a ghost in the book that makes everything move around it. That's what I mean. You, th- you think you throw stuff away, yeah, and the sort yeah. of good stuff just yeah. came back. On that cliffhanger, uh, <laughs> um, we have a, well, about four or five hours if we choose to, but we have about uh, 15 official minutes or so to uh, to open it up to uh, these people present. So if you have a hand, if you have a hand, raise it. <laughs> raise your hand. Raise your hand. If you have a hand Raise your hand for a question, and I shall take your question and repeat it in true question time fashion. Um, yes? Yeah. Uh, Mark, you used the word clinical uh, very early on uh, to describe um, Simon's, uh, possibly Simon's attitude towards your novel. Um, but uh, um, the implication was that it's very difficult for novelists to do their own screenplays. Do you, is, that, is that what you meant? Is it very difficult? Yeah, I think it is. No, very few exceptions. So, just to repeat the question, is it difficult for a novelist to do his her own screenplay? Stage stage. Well, the famous one was Jeanette Winston, who did, what was her first book she translated onto television? Yeah, with Charlotte Coleman. And that was was actually very good. And what's interesting about that was an example of how to do it, because I don't know whether anyone remembers the original novel. It was interlaced with these slightly strange fairy tale chapters. People forget they were there because they were taken out for the. TV adaptation and it worked really well, but I don't think there are many other good examples. But I didn't mean that you were clinical. I just meant that I you, like come, you come out with no preconceptions. Okay, technical. NHS or private? On the ground. Yeah, yeah. Another question. 
question, raise your hand. So you, they're not interested. <laughs> <laughs> And that's a good question. Yeah, what, how do you get on as a married couple? What was the biggest uh, <laughs> conflict you had? You still have to go Ross, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, no, I've kind of gone off them, actually, <laughs> after the, the first album. Uh, in terms of the adaptation or just in life? Let's um, start adaptation. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I, I mean, the truth is that Mark, you, that you were, that he is... He was an exemplary collaborator. I remember in our first meeting him saying, I will be present for you whenever you need me, and now I'm going to go and I won't ask you again. Look at this like a love story. No, really, really lovely. It's a bromance, not a marriage thing. The, um, um, uh, he, 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 uh, in that whenever I had a question, I could email you or ring you. And if I didn't, if I just wanted to get on with it on my own, then I'd just get on with it and ignore you. And I, I was nervous delivering the first drafts to you. But you never, I can't remember you saying at any point, that doesn't work, don't do that. I think there were some things you knew weren't going to work, and you kept a really, you did the brilliant collaborative thing of just waiting. You did the appendix, and, didn't no, what, what, in, in, the appendix, in the appendix, in what was... No, at the end, remember we, we, got, we talked about... Oh, this is boring. At the end, we, we were talking about the appendix, whether the maths worked in it, right? Oh, yeah, 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 very good, very good, very good. Yeah, okay, good. That was about the, that was about the mathematics of that, but I didn't really understand the mathematics of that. Well, I was writing it. I was just transcribing what you wrote and trying to put it onto the stage, so that... But it wasn't, apart, it wasn't, apart, apart from that, I don't think... I, don't, I can't remember any disagreement in which you said that isn't going to work. And when, when, when there were things which you thought weren't going to work, you just kept quiet until, and, and allowed us to discover their inevitable failure. The, the iron rule, I think, for an adaptation, it's, it's really hard to get this right, but it works if you do it right, is just to get the right people to do it to start with. If you get nearly the right people, and then you, then you think, I'm going to put the extra effort in to steer them in the direction I want them to go, you, you'll lose two years of your life. I know writers who've, who've had films made of their novels, and they have lost years of their lives, and, Doing that. And it's the same, same working with the director and working with actors. You know, half the work in the making of production is casting. You know, and, and, and Marianne Elliott, who directed the play, is such a brilliant <coughs> caster. She casts so precisely uh, that actually it, it, she's not put in a position where she needs to do an immense amount of direction. Because, you know, you cast somebody like Paul Ritter or Luke Dreadaway or Nicola Walker, they're going to find it themselves. You know, watching Marianne work with Paul Ritter was amazing. Because what she just did was just do nothing, and just trusted him, and just said, "You'll do it. You're, you're getting there. You're getting there. It's brilliant." And, um, and, and, and I think that, I think that, you know, I, I can't remember any disagreement apart from the maths in the appendix. And frankly, I just didn't understand that maths anyway. So I was happy to be guided. In terms of the uh, mentioning of the director, how early in the sort of um, early staging meetings? this very sort of digitised incredibly sort of you know high-tech sort of vision become part of the sort of core you'd need to ask Marianne Elliott and Bonnie Christie about that I was going to do that right now <laughs> I wasn't part of the wasn't I wasn't part of the design meetings I mean what I do know is that when I was writing the adaptation I knew Marianne was the right director yeah, yeah, yeah. even yeah. before I'd finished the draft I just thought yeah. this has got Marianne Elliott all over it yeah. 
and I knew that uh, front of assembly were going to be ideal collaborators. Yeah. And that I've, was I've got a question to ask you, which I've never really asked you before. Um, I often compliment you in interviews with this, so I just want to check that I'm actually telling the truth. <laughs> I say one of the great things about the work you did is actually not visible uh, necessarily on stage or indeed on the page. It was that when you, when you came to it, when you thought you could do it, you knew there were possibilities in there that neither I nor anyone else would have imagined. So how early on did you think Frantic Assembly had a role in it? Yeah, within about a day of starting work on it. Well, my compliments are correct then. I mean, if you... Because Christopher's Balletic. Because Christopher's Balletic. Yeah. Christopher's Balletic. yeah. yeah. But yeah. looking back from the stage play, you might think... Well, if I do think, I think it's extraordinary that you, you looked at that novel and thought, yeah, let's get something that's almost dancing. <laughs> but I could never have done that. Yeah. I think very, very few people could have done that. Um, Simon, you said about you write for specific actors or directors. Um, given that your plays produce so widely, do you then sort of feel a sense of disappointment or? No, it's really euphoric when when I don't get those actors or, or when I the see some. Moves on, but, or no, when it's really it's fun. It's, it, uh, I'm, I'm re- I, I really lack fidelity <laughs> in terms of my relationship with actors. So that <laughs> as soon as another actor. <laughs> incorporates the body of a character I've imagined, I can only see them as the character. And it's fascinating at the moment, well, you know, Luke Treadaway has rightly been really celebrated for his performance because his performance is astonishing and it's genuinely astonishing. But I have to say, uh, Johnny Gibbon, who plays Christopher on Monday and Tuesday in Tuesday Matinees, is Fantastic. And as soon as, he's, as soon as he as soon as he manifests Christopher, he's very, very different to Luke. He's taller, he's heavier, he's bigger built, uh, he thinks differently, he talks differently. But as soon as I started watching him for the first time, my, my memory of Luke disappeared and all I saw was Johnny. So I, I, I never do that thing of thinking, oh, I wish it was still such and such. I just kind of, or really rarely, there are certain things that English actors do that actors outside of England can't do so well. And when I watch a production outside of England, sometimes I hanker for English actors. And specifically, it's the capacity to contain emotion. So watching... Uh, I've watched... It, it's Harper Regan and On the Shore of the Wide World and Port, the three Stockport plays, not always, and I'm a bit... the very few bigger champions of German theatre in the English theatre world than me. I really love German theatre. But the one thing that an actor like Leslie Sharp or Nick Cleaves or Nick Silly can do is just put a cap on emotion. And, to, and I've seen productions of those plays abroad where the actors have been much more expressive and demonstrative of their emotion, and it's really not worked. But we're getting the German language premiere of this is happening in the autumn in Dusseldorf, which is going to be. Are you going to come? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be very, very interesting to see what the Germans do with this text. But I, I, I don't... I remember have... you saying to me, we were talking about polar bears, and you said, when they, when they do it in Germany, so you said, be brace, they will do it naked with a brass bear. <laughs> 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 it's when, it's good, when that's good, when that's good, it's because the play was always meant to be done naked with a brass bear. <laughs> in a way that you never realised in front of assembly with, yeah. with the ideal collaborators for this production. You also never realised that Curious Incident was meant to be done, but meant to be done naked with a brass bear. <laughs> when we get to Dusseldorf, that is what we will enjoy. <laughs> Darling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Very back, yes. Yeah. 
returning to that theme, Simon, you, you said earlier that you um, you were that you, you joked that you were seduced by the uh, the West End and you were joking and being ironic about that. Was there anything that any of you kind of had a line in the sand where you wouldn't compromise uh, on going into so we're talking about the transfer, we're talking about changes that may or may not have happened. Well, there was a big sort of staging change, wasn't there, in terms of how. So were there a line that's drawn in things that could and could not happen? I, well, I mean, there weren't, for me, there weren't in my memory. But I think that goes back to your point of choosing your collaborators really carefully. So it was important that the transfer was produced by the National Theatre. It was important that the, the key producers behind it were Nick Heidner and Nick Starr, and that Marianne was part of that. So they never kind of they never took us to one side and said, "What about Andrew Garfield as Christopher, or you know uh, whoever?" But you do feel a little odd, sort of walking down Shaftesbury Avenue and turning into that theatre, don't you? What do you yeah, I, I get off on it actually. <laughs> I like what I like is a Friday, Saturday night, getting out, of, turning out of that theatre, and all, and there's about four plays that finish at the same time. And for about five minutes, Shaftesbury Avenue yeah. feels like a football stadium <laughs> emptying. I think there's something intoxicating about that. And actually, you know, uh, uh, I've, I've spoken a lot about why German theatre is infinitely more exciting than British theatre. And spoken publicly about that, and what I would, what I love about British theatre is that in its metabolism, all of us making theatre in Britain necessarily are innately democratic, and we take that democracy from Shakespearean theatre. So, in the way that our, our national dramatist, you know, our national writer is a dramatist, our national writer, um, when he wrote some of the greatest philosophical and emotional uh, texts of the history of human thought. He always had one eye on the tanner or the candlestick maker and seducing them away from the bear baiting and away from the cockfighting. So even in Twelfth Night, there's a sense of fundamental democracy. And while I cherish and support and really envy the level of state subsidy in German theatre, for example, I think there's something about that moment on a Saturday night when Shaftesbury Avenue empties and 2,000 people pour out at once that I'm very proud to be part of as well. And that doesn't feel like a compromise to me. That feels like a recognition of theatre culture, which is, uh, of a theatre culture which is innately English. Do you think about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one yeah. um, as a native New Yorker, I must ask, is bringing this um, production... Um, to New York, something that's on the horizon, and is that something that would excite you or terrify you? Joyfully out of our hands. <laughs> it is. It's other people's decision. But is that something as writers that would scare you, bringing it to a theater scene like New York? No. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. It'd be great. I mean, I think I think New York theater at the moment, for the past ten years, has been really conservative. I think New York theater is really suffering. Because of the expense of the theatre culture there, I, I'd be really, I think, it'd be really interesting what happens in Detroit in the next ten years. There's part of me thinks the most exciting theatre in the US is going to be made in Detroit, because nobody can afford to make a theatre in New York. It's just ridiculous. So, uh, you know, when you look at the history of New York theatre, when it was thrilling, it was when Manhattan was a dangerous place to go. So Sam Shepard was working in Manhattan when actually you could just get knife really easily. 
when I go up Manhattan now, it feels like Knightsbridge with the skyline. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and so I'm, I think it was Patty Smith said recently, the architects should go to Detroit. And I think, that, I think that's really, all of a sudden, I'm like, that's exciting. Um, there's a great heritage of theatre in Broadway, in New York, of course. At the moment, I think it's a bit conservative. They've got Barbara Swanson playing with the Lord Christopher actually on the. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That's what. <laughs> this would be great. That's what I. Well, I suspect that we both feel about the the stage play now, and the, the sort of version of what I feel about the novel is quite robust, isn't it? And, yeah. I, and I feel very confident. And we love it as it is, and I think it's not a case of will someone accept it. It'll be a kind of bench. It'll be a way of testing those people. You know, do you like it? Yeah, you if they don't, then they're wrong. <laughs> we don't want to go with it. They're wrong. There's no point going. There was a story. The film rights had been sold to uh, Warner Brothers in heyday, and uh, they didn't tell us about this. We know they snuck in at the National to have, to have a look at it. First preview. It was the first preview. Rose Johnson was on the first preview. Yeah. And I love the fact that they were sitting there through that and thinking, "Shit." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, that was a yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry, I just wanted to pick up on this point of democracy, of democracy Because <laughs> um, yeah. I wanted to ask whether it um, extended to the rehearsal rooms of, um, of theatres and companies. Um, I listened to an interview that you gave on Theatre Voice, I think, about the Bruce incident, if yeah. I'm right in remembering, and you said that, I hope I've got this right now, you said that you... Um, sat with the designers the way that the rehearsal room was organised was such yeah. that anybody in that room could uh, advance a suggestion for mm-hmm. staging, mm-hmm. you know, whatever and there were other rehearsal rooms in where that wouldn't have been a possibility, mm-hmm. the stage manager or the assistant director, or, mm-hmm. you know, would, wouldn't have ventured an opinion or, or yeah. so I really uh, like this idea of a kind of the, the democracy of British theatre in the form of content of, of some of its plays and what you were saying about the football being like a stadium like that so mm-hmm. we have on a Friday night and I'm just wondering about the hierarchies of British theatre and territories and the kind of picking order of directors and writers and actors and designers and mm-hmm. so hierarchies, territories and the whole yeah. and how the curiosity <laughs> fits into those traditional hierarchies and, and whether this particular rehearsal process was different from other rehearsal processes that you've experienced <coughs> and that it, it was more democratic it's really, it's a, it's a, it, it's an enormously interesting and enormously complicated question, and worth distinguishing between the democracy of a Saturday night on Shaftesbury Avenue and the democracy of a uh, of a rehearsal room. Why do you think I, about that? Can I go? Yeah, no, go. Something else about it, just to move away for a second. Two very important aspects of democracy about the play, which I think are absolutely fantastic, is down to the national. One is the huge number of cheap seats they've mm-hmm. got for every performance. Including at the Apollo. Including at the Apollo, yeah. yeah. But there's some 150 or 12 quid, isn't yeah. um, They actually changed the venue because the previous venue would have, would, have, would have involved a kind of recreation of the Cottesloe inside a non-theatrical space, and that would have made it too expensive to make it accessible. So they moved it to, to the Apollo deliberately so they could keep some of those tickets down. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. But the other thing that they're doing, they're doing it again in... June is they're going to have, and I hope they have more of these, and I hope more people have more of them, is relaxed performances, where it's supposedly for people who, are, who have autistic spectrum disorders, but for anyone with any kind of behavioural issue, which means that they feel ill at ease in the theatre, or they think they're going to get chucked out, or people are going to be tutting at them, they can come in. The, the whole performance is 
is made a little bit softer in terms of lights and noise. And it's expected that if you want to leave, they'll have a chill-out room in the front of the theatre and you come in and out. And we both missed it last time at the Costa, didn't we? But it was apparently it was... In terms of the question of how democracy plays out in the rehearsal room, uh, I think it would be really it would be a mistake to generalise about uh, orthodox English rehearsal rooms. I think each director is different, and I think each production for each director is different, and probably each day of a rehearsal in each production for each director is different because there were some days I'm sure when Marianne came in and she would just be like, right, I am going to fucking whip the shit out of this and sort it out and get it exactly like I want. I think to gen- uh, I think to simplify, I think Marianne is extraordinary. Marianne Elliott, who's directed the play, is extraordinary in two uh, senses. One in that she prepares more than any director I've ever worked with. You know, her level of preparation is breathtaking. It's almost a kind of psychotic level of preparation. <laughs> so for all that she's directed four productions of my plays, Port Twice, Harper Regan and Curious Incident, for all four of those productions, she has known those plays much more than I do because her level of preparation has been astonishing. And I kind of think she goes into the rehearsal room with a really clear sense of what she expects and what she wants. But at the same time, I think when all four of those productions were incurious more than any other, she created a room which, which had the spirit, some might say the myth, of openness. You know, where people really felt as though we were in a game together and, we, and everybody's opinion was valid and everybody felt they could speak. And the moment I talk about um, which I've, ne- I've never seen happen in any rehearsal room before. Uh, so the people who've seen the production will remember the moment where Christopher's hiding on the luggage rack. Yeah? When he's hiding on the train, on the train from Swindon to London, he goes to hide from the policeman and hides on the luggage rack. Uh, and the luggage rack is established very quickly the second time a customer takes a case from the luggage rack, which is the old woman. But what she does is she just releases... Um, one of the white boxes in the production has a kind of uh, uh, a, hand, uh, a kind of handle like those bags on wheels do, and she just presses it, and all from this box comes this handle. Do you remember that bit? Yeah. All of a sudden, luggage rack is established. Not everybody remembers that bit. For me, it's my favourite part of the play. <laughs> that, 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 that idea was the stage manager's idea, or the deputy stage manager's idea, and he just said, "Well, we could do that. We could put a handle in, and it could slide up." I, I, I've worked with a lot of directors in Britain. Not many would be happy for the stage manager to contribute to the art of the production. But she created an environment in which we felt like such a gang that we all felt as though we could contribute to that. And that my contribution was no more important than the stage manager's. And that uh, and all of the design team were of an equal level. It's total theatre. What's really weird, this, uh, this is, well, alienate almost everybody apart from you, Jackie, is I think the production that it's most like of all the productions of my play is Three Kingdoms. And um, weirdly, Three Kingdoms and Curious Incident sit on opposite ends of uh, how commercial they are. But actually, in the spirit of making it, the, the rehearsal rooms are really similar. And the kind of energy of total theatre was really, I think, is really shared. I think they've got a lot in common. It's a bit geeky, but just for us too. <laughs> <laughs> you know how um, the play and novel has, has been sort of abbreviated to just curious? 
Um, the dogs. Yeah. 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 I'm sort of thinking uh, David Gregg wrote, you know, the Cosmonauts' last message to the one. There's a very long, almost fantastic play with a very, very long title, and everybody just calls it Cosmonauts or, or Last Message. Mm-hmm. How do you tag your long labelled novel? Do you give it its yeah. full title? Curious. You just call it Curious. He calls it Dog. <laughs> yeah, 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 sometimes it's called curious, sometimes. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, it's a Yeah. It's very Kafka or very. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't. I, 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 other people will have to tell me the meaning of that. Yeah. What call, yeah. As long as people get it right. I, when I first thought of the title, when I, thought, when I stole the title from uh, Conan Doyle, mm. I thought 50% of people will never forget this when they hear it, and the other 50% will get, always get it wrong and never remember it. Over the years, there some problems. Someone wrote about the curious incident with the dog in the nighty. <laughs> That's a very curious. <laughs> I think I've seen a picture of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Sam and I were talking about this the other day. In fact, I remember saying to you, we were walking, we were walking up Sharpie Avenue, I said, do you ever sit on the toilet and think, wow, I'm one of Europe's premier players? <laughs> <laughs> but we, we both have situations in which... People come up to us and think we are the other version of ourselves with capital letters, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And uh, when that happens to people, and people mention the title of my book, you can see their eyes start to swivel because they think, oh shit, it's got so many words in it. The strange cat thing in the. <laughs> well, curious or not, thank you very much for sharing your evening with us this evening. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and thank you for a brilliant talk.